0: Growing up in the insular Jewish Haredi community of Borough Park, Brooklyn, Asher Lovi was sexually, physically, and mentally abused by his mother. He was met by silence, for discussion of such aggressions was neither welcome nor acknowledged by his community. Asher now heads Tza'aka, Hebrew for outcry
1: and a Good People Fund grantee, to advocate for survivors of sexual abuse
0: in the Orthodox Jewish community. In this episode of Good People Talk, GPF co-founder and executive director Naomi Eisenberger talks to Asher
1: about his personal journey and Za'aka's impact. For more information, go to goodpeoplefund.org and za'aka.org, both listed in the episode notes. Here's Naomi and Asher in conversation. I
0: know, and everyone who knows the Good People Fund... Realizes that the founders have a very, always have a very unique story. In your case, it is not only unique, but it is deeply, deeply personal and it's uncomfortable. You are very open about that. Share with our listeners your story and the story of Zaka.
1: So I grew up in Bar Park in a Haredi family. We were not exactly the typical family in the sense that our family unit was a little bit different. I lived with my grandparents. My mother lived there. I had an uncle who lived there as well, uh, another uncle who lived there for a number of years. So we were, you know, a little bit of a mixed group. In effect, I was raised by my grandparents, but my mother was present. Uh, she she struggled with mental illness, uh, with bipolar disorder. And for the first 16 years of my life, there was a cycle of every. Three years, she would go off her medication and uh, life would be very difficult for a couple of months. Then she would go to inpatient treatment, come back, um, and things would stabilize again for another three years. When I was 16, that kind of changed. That pattern kind of fell apart. And from the age of about 16, 17, until I left when I was 23, it was pretty much nonstop abuse of several different kinds, both of me and my grandmother. While I was going through this, I started volunteering at a drop-in center for at-risk kids called Our Place. It's in Midwood, Brooklyn. I figured, you know, if I'm stuck in this situation, if I have these these experiences, I may as well use them to help kids who are having a harder time. And while working there, it became apparent to me that my abuse wasn't isolated. It was happening to a lot of other people. I was told by the the director of the organization, something like 85 to 90% of the kids there had been, had been abused either sexually or physically, and that, to me was crazy. That was an unbelievably high number that that I didn't expect. Seeing this up close and personal and seeing the effects that it had, not only on me, but obviously on, on all of the kids there, really made an impact and pushed me to want to do more. Around this time, I was in a support group for survivors of sexual abuse. A number of the members were involved in what became ZACA, uh, which was originally formed to protest the internet of Sifa, the banning of the internet in Brooklyn. The mission shifted a little bit before the inaugural protest. When an unlicensed therapist in Williamsburg was arrested for raping his 12-year-old client, The community held a fundraiser for the rapist. Zaka kind of, which I wasn't a part of yet, pivoted to, to protest that, which is where Zaka first got its, its, uh, its notoriety in the community. This was in 2012. I stayed in my abusive home for another two years until, in, until 2014. I thought that, you know, maybe I could do something about it. Maybe I could help my grandmother. Maybe I could make some change. Maybe I could get my family to care. That ended up not being the case. And when I realized that things were never going to get better, I, you know, packed a couple of bags and ran and never looked back.
0: I'm assuming from what you've just shared that there was no one in the family unit that intervened.
1: Um, No, my family wasn't really inclined to do much because my grandmother, for whatever reason, felt an intense amount of guilt for for how my mother turned out uh, and wasn't willing to do anything about it. Um, My family wasn't willing to prioritize me over her. And I don't think they took the issue seriously. They they, They certainly didn't take what I was going through seriously. There was one uncle who lived around the corner from me who saw a lot of what happened. And uh, at some point I, w- I went over to his house on a Shabbos afternoon and I spent two hours telling him exactly what was going on and asking him to help me. And he did get me a job, which got me a little, little bit of money. But a few weeks later, that at that point, I had started dropping out of high school already to, to get a job, a different job. And, uh, you know, he saw me home and on the internet instead of uh, in, in yeshiva. And he told me essentially that I was, you know, lying about the abuse to justify mm-hmm. my sins. So, no, my, my family certainly didn't intervene. They saw me asking them. And pointing it out, you know, kind of trying to advocate for myself as, as an annoyance, as a, as, a, as a nuisance that they'd prefer didn't exist within the family. Because to them, you know, we had a normal from family that to all outward appearances was just like everybody else, just as important as everybody else, just as, as religious as everybody else, uh, just as regular as everybody else. When in fact, we had a long history, a long family history of mental, uh, of mental illness, uh, something of a history of abuse in the family. You know, we had a lot of a lot of issues in our family that, you know, we preferred to sweep under the rug uh, because, you know, the grandchildren need to get married and it's going to ruin the shidduchim if we actually address this. Uh, one of the things that I heard over and over again is, you know, what are the neighbors going to say? What's it going to do to our, our shidduchim?
0: What was going on in your head in terms of the prevalence of this within the community? And were you able to connect with them in any way? I
1: didn't know that this was a thing that happened at all. Except to me, for a while, I would say until probably 2010-ish was probably when when I first realized that this was happening to other people. But at that point, I didn't really realize how prevalent it was. I didn't really realize how much of a problem it was until I started volunteering at the Strappin Center, but also until I I joined the support group that I mentioned earlier. There were like 100, 150 people there who were either from or had recently been from or had in the past been from, all of whom had experienced sexual abuse and you know the most horrific things that you could imagine were going on in the firm world. So that really opened my eyes to the prevalence of it. And I think one of the things that made it easier to uh, come to terms with is the wrong word, but, but sort of process was that as saddened as I was by the realization of the prevalence, it was also a relief to know I wasn't going through it alone, that there were other people who understood what I was going through. In terms of Calculating actual prevalence, uh, it's extremely difficult to calculate prevalence because the community resists study actively. And it's in their interest to resist study on prevalence because if there aren't if there isn't any data on prevalence, any solid definitive data on prevalence, then they could claim that it's lower.
0: What do you think gave you the strength to take the road that you took? having had all of those experiences?
1: Anger is a big part of it. And a lot of the early Zaka work was venting it, which was very satisfying. But there actually was a specific moment that set me on this course. I wouldn't characterize everything I do as a choice because sometimes you, you just kind of driven in a direction that you don't really have time to choose. It's just like, you're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. And I believe that if a lot of people who get involved in nonprofits, there was a moment actually. So when I was, uh, I don't remember which year it was, I think maybe it was 2010, 2011, something like that. I decided that I needed to essentially write my story down. i published an article about what I'd been going through in Ami magazine in 2011. And uh, it was published under a pseudonym actually, because you know my grandmother begged me not to put my name on it? What's it going to do for Shadduchim? And it felt extremely unsatisfying to see my story in print without my name in it. It felt depersonalized, like it wasn't mine anymore. So I I committed to telling the story. So that November, it's National Novel Writers Month, every November, there are groups across the world that get together and commit to writing 50,000 words within 30 days. A lot of people use it for other purposes as well, because there's this incredible energy around it. There's an online forum and community. There are in person writing groups, especially in a city like New York City. So I would show up at these writing groups and I told them all, you know, I'm, I'm writing a memoir, not a novel and they they didn't care. And I cranked out, yeah, I cranked out 50,000 words in 14 days. It wasn't particularly good. And, but, you know, I did it. Uh, and at the end of the of the 14 days, I went back and I, you know, I, I read it. I thought I had done a proper revision. I hadn't. But, you know, I learned that later once I learned how to write, actually. And uh, <laughs> I, I took the manuscript that I had on my computer. I went to a, a FedEx Kinkos, printed it and bound it. And uh, I had it. Is in my hand, I had it. And I'm, I'm walking home, I'm walking to, to the train station to go home. And I have this like extremely weird feeling. I've never felt it again in my life. It was this mix of accomplishment and also like utter emptiness and futility and impossibility. Because I was like, okay, so I've, I've written my story out. Now it's real, now I have to do something with it. Nothing's ever gonna come of this. Like who's gonna wanna publish this garbage, you know? If it doesn't get published, why does it matter? And I remember being at the train station and I wasn't sure if I should get on the train or jump in front of it, so I didn't. Spoiler alert! A couple of weeks later, I got a message from someone who had read an, had read the excerpt of the book that I had posted on my profile, you know, and said like I have a very similar experiences. We ended up talking over Skype. She said at some some point, I thought I was going through this alone. I thought that what I was going through was only happening to me, which to me was a very identifiable feeling. And she said, like, you know, had you not written this, had you not put this excerpt up on the site, I would have continued thinking I was the only one going through it. Uh, Cause she had gone through something very, very similar, a mother with mental illness. There were other kids in the family, which wasn't true with my family, but that kind of helped to refocus what I was doing to, instead of I need to make sure that this story reaches as wide an audience as possible, change to, I just need to make sure that my story is out there so that there are people who can see it. You know, if it's even one person, if it's helping them, that's good enough. So that attitude kind of Started pushing me toward the direction of general activism.
0: Tell us what services Zaka offers.
1: Uh, so the two primary things we provide are referrals and the mental health hotline, uh, which we run on Shabbos and Yom Tov. So the approach I took when I took over Zaka because the the direction of Zaka shifted from protest and and awareness to other things like advocacy. And the question was, were we going to Start move, moving to services, or where were we going to stick to advocacy? And one of the things that was decided early on was. We want to focus on advocacy, not get in, not get into services. But there was a void, which was that there are a lot of resources out there for for survivors that provide great service, but but people don't know about them. And one of the most stressful things, if you're going through something, is to try to pick apart which resources are good, what they offer, you know, what the best one is to your situation, and calling them up and getting rejected, and then having to find other ones. It's like you're dealing with so much already; you don't need to be dealing with that. So we we decided we're not going to reinvent the wheel. But what, what we're going to do is have survivors call us, tell us what they need, tell us what they're experiencing. We'll try to connect them with the best resource. So that's one service that, that we provide. The other service is we have a Shabbos and Yom Tov mental health Pierce Port Hotline that started uh, April 2020, and we're open every Shabbos and Yom Tov, day and night, for anybody—not just for survivors of sexual abuse, but for anybody who's going through any sort of mental health struggle. Call us up and talk to us, and we also provide educational material about child protection and you know how to respond to abuse. We do this through participating in educational events.
0: You project a no fear attitude you're not afraid to speak up you're out there on social media in the traditional media you're speaking out against something that is so horrific most people don't want to even think about it that has to come i would think at some personal cost
1: um you think so but for me no because I don't have anything to lose by doing this. I have a stable job. I don't have a family uh, that I'm in touch with, so there's no one has that leverage over me. Uh, the community that I live in, is very well aware of what I do. The rabbi is very well aware of what I do. They're completely fine with it. So so I happen to be in the position that I don't care about Shadduchim. I don't care about family. I, I don't care about someone coming after my job. I don't care about someone sending rabbis after me. I don't care about any of that. So I, I have the luxury of not having to worry about that, which means that I am the person who can do it.
0: Do you see movement in any way?
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, here's the, the, uh, the muscle I like to use. It's like uh, some guy opens an internet business and he s- sets up this website and he starts selling his widgets. And first year he sells, he sells widgets. He sells one case of widgets. Uh, the next year he sells two cases of widgets. So he realizes that selling widgets isn't his business. So he closes the store down and writes a book about how he doubled sales in, in two years. You know, that's what change in the community is like, it's, it's incremental and they take far t- too much credit for it. But there has been change, you know, uh, th- th- there's change every time that there's any big flashpoint case, you know, like, there was change from from when in 2011, sorry, uh, earlier than that in the 2000s, you know, you couldn't really talk about sexual abuse. It wasn't a word that people would acknowledge. Out loud. And then in 2011, the Aguda is putting out this this psock, which is garbage, and I don't agree with it, but the fact is they're putting out this psak saying that, you know, in theory, you can can report abuse to police, right, which in terms of like change in the community gives license to people to say the words out loud, even if they're still barred from reporting to police practically, because they're told that they still have to ask rabbis, which is a perfect example of the mushal I, I, I gave earlier, right, they're doubling sales in two years, but doing nothing, you know, and then you fast forward to just a year later in 2012, when the Weberman case happens, and everybody, everybody in the Haredi world is forced to take a position on sexual abuse many took a position against the victims which was the wrong one but they're talking about it you know yeah. which is which is another example of this sort of stunted progress you know and then on down the line like when i first got the database with the cases with the the full list of cases from the child victims act uh, after the window closed and i looked through them i fully expected there to be maybe a dozen, maybe, maybe a dozen cases. There were a lot more than a dozen cases. I was shocked. That represents progress. And you, you take a look at the response to Chaim Walder, which is, you know, uh, on the part of the people, right? On the, the grassroots level, like the, the people are woke up and they realized like, our are feeding us garbage, like they, they do not necessarily have our best interests at heart. It was the first time in 10 years of doing this that I was able to have a conversation with a Haredi person on the phone and tell them your rabbi is wrong and they didn't hang up on me. Now, from the leadership level, obviously, they're interested in in holding on to power as much as possible. So their response Lately, has been in response to Chaim Walder. Well, yeah, this is a very serious problem. What we need to do is we need to establish special batidin to deal with the problem. Of course, you know, you shouldn't go to police, whatever. They're not going to help you anyway. Come to us. We're going to help you, as if that's true. But even that, like, you know, stunted as it is and, and backwards as it is, is still, they're being forced to do something that they don't want to do. And that means that, that there is hope in this movement. To be honest, I, I stopped focusing on, on communal change a long time ago. And now Zaka just makes itself available to, uh, we try to make the circumstances favorable, as favorable as possible for survivors who want to come forward. And we try to just be there for the ones who want help, irrespective of what the community wants, which was one of our focuses with the Child Victims Act. You know, if we can change the community from within, we can at least make the outside as open to the, to the possibility of justice as possible.
0: Thinking about the future, where do you see Zaka going?
1: It's an interesting question, and one that I spend time thinking about. What we would like to get done is we would like to expand Aaron's law, which was uh, a law passed mandating abuse prevention education in public schools. We would like to expand that mandate to private schools as well. We would like to pass the Adult Survivors Act to open a retroactive window for survivors of adult sexual violence, so people who have experienced sexual violence over the age of 18. Um, That bill has been... Uh, in the legislature for a few years now, and uh, Zach is part of a coalition that's working on it. But you know we would like to get more more involved. Um, and also, there's uh, significant reforms necessary, for mandatory reporting laws. There are many carve-outs that need to be closed. For example, uh, clergy are, are exempted, period, in, in New York. Setting aside the clergy penitent privilege, clergy are exempted. All, all these people that you would assume are, are required to, to report aren't, and it creates this huge loophole through which a lot of abuse slips. And another issue that we started working on that we would like to pick back up is the uh, abrogation of the clergy penitent privilege in New York because... You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of abuse that gets covered up because the courts tend to defer to clergy to decide whether the privilege ex- exists because it's technically only in the context of pastoral counseling or religious counseling. But it's clergy that gets to determine that. So if clergy is confessing to to other clergy, you have a cover up right there. This has been an excuse used not only by by Catholics because the privilege extends to every group uh, that can claim a religious purpose. It's been used in Orthodox Jewish cases, we don't have a clergy penitent sacrament, you know, but if it's in the law, they're going to use it. So so we were working on hopefully getting some momentum going for an abrogation of that privilege.
0: What can anyone do to promote this issue and to put it out there a little bit more than it is and to help you?
1: Obviously, donations are welcome. But more, more than that, I think people need to become a lot more annoying about the issue of sexual abuse. You know, they, they need to become that nudnik. One of the things that people ask me is like, what can I do to make sure that the institutions I send my my kids to are safer? Call them up and bother them. Ask them what their policy is, what their anti-harassment and anti-abuse policy is. Ask them how many trainings they they give a year to to children, parents, and teachers go around asking teachers, quizzing them on it. If they don't have a policy, ask them why they don't organize parents, tell them to bother these institutions and make, them make a policy when you see people engaging in apologetics on behalf of sex abusers fight them if you if you hear it at a shabbos table argue with them if you see people bringing up false reports throw the statistics at them don't roll over when people push this garbage because the only way this is going to change is if these misconceptions are are fought on a grassroots level and if institutions are forced into compliance on a on an institutional level. And that only happens if there's a cost to them not doing that. And they have to know that the donations that they receive are contingent on them implementing and cultivating an environment that's best practices based and and trauma informed. Make it harder to not be good than to be good.
0: I want to thank you, Asher, for giving us um, time this morning. I hope that our listeners have learned a great deal about this topic, a topic that is certainly difficult to discuss. And in your case, something that is extraordinarily personal. Thank you again.
1: You too. Thanks for having me on.